Hello everybody and welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast, the RPG Interview Room, a podcast dedicated to interviewing this absolutely amazing bunch of people within the RPG world. I am Paco Garcia, your host. Today I have an absolutely fantastic duo who are right now in Kickstarter doing a fantastic project called Grimmer Space, which is essentially horror for the Starfinder role-playing game. Uh, yeah, it just, just like that. Uh, it's, it sounds a lot simpler than it actually is. And it's got a, a brilliant, brilliant premise that caught my eye pretty much immediately I heard about the project. Um, also, it, it helps that the two writers I have with me, the two people, are actually pretty good what they do because uh, if you don't know the names of Rome Barton and Lua Gresta yet uh, you better write those down and take a look because seriously they are top-notch as in serious top-notch you know not just you know uh, the top-notch person who's been writing things you know his own game for about 10 years and then comes out and it happens to be good because it's been at it for 10 years no no not that kind of good not that kind of top-notch the, the kind of top-notch that they really have done some fantastic stuff in the past. You might have also heard about this project because no other than Sean Astin, yes, that Sean Astin from Stranger Things, Lord of the Rings and many other things, is actually involved in this project. So it, it was something that caught my eye because it, I'm starting to get the feeling that celebrities are kind of, oh, I, I want to be associated with a role-playing game project now because it's, it's kind of cool, you know. It's, yeah, that's, that's where the cool kids are right now, sort of situation. So, anyway, I thought I wanted to talk to them at last and because I've known both Lou and Ron for a while on Facebook but never had a chance to, to have a proper chat. And uh, believe you me, this was a very well worth one hour of my life that could have easily have turned into three because I was having a blast talking to them uh, both in and out of microphones. So uh, please do get a beverage of your choice, sit back or go for a walk or whatever, but get ready to enjoy yourself because this, my friends, is a really, really good one. Rome, welcome. Welcome to the show. First time, even though I've had you on Facebook for a long time, and we've spoken in the past a few times, but never really heard our voices. That's right. Ever. That's right. All, all text. Going back to some of Enzeitgeist's first reviews. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, he actually recommended some some adventures that he wrote for Call of Cthulhu um, a while ago. Oh, Snows of, yeah, he wrote a Snows of an Early Winter. Right? Yes. Yeah, that was a good one. Exactly. Good job, Lou. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> right. Um, however, um, we're here for other things, but um, you know, as usual, I need, I need to make sure that you, you know, because I've never spoken to you before, so I just have to make sure that you know how to answer questions because not not everybody can. That sounds fair. So, 
I am going to ask you uh, both uh, five questions, uh, and, and just let me know, just to make sure that we are, you know, in, in the spirit of asking. So, um, question number one. Tea or coffee? Tea. Coffee. Okay, one of each. Good, good. Uh, but, but hopefully not often, because he goes crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the beach or the mountain? Mountains. To live in or to visit? No, uh, live in the mountains. Okay, mountains. Good. Uh, motorbikes or cars? That's, that's oh. it. So, you know, motorbikes are are are, are like a, a massage for the groin, <laughs> and I really do appreciate it. But uh, I do like the security of a car because when you're on a motorbike, people don't see where they don't care, and they sometimes drive their big cars into you. So I'm going to have to go car on this one. Okay. I'm I'm gonna go the opposite. I'm I'm gonna although I do not have one currently. I got my first motorcycle at 16, and uh, I, I drove a motorcycle all through China, and I just love and miss them. Not to seem less worldly than Lou, I got my first <laughs> motorcycle given to me by a dangerous man, and I drove it illegally all the way across Canada. Um, so we like to travel the world, um, young and dumb. And on only two wheels. That's awesome. true. That's really awesome, though. Right. Question number. <laughs> question my number my four. first one was illegal too. That's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah, I, I didn't sure. know that about you. <laughs> right. Question number four. This is a little bit harder. Uh, fantasy or science fiction? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> okay. I was, I was expecting something similar to that. I have to oh, it's say. like, do you want dinner? Or do you want to drink with dinner? I'm like. Okay. Um, yeah, if I, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. I, I don't know what genre. Um, I don't know what genre I wouldn't put on the list. Actually, I like, uh, like, uh, I guess these are silly questions, so you don't want a deep answer here. But that would be impossible. That would be the Sophie's choice of genres. Um, I think Lou and I both like uh, most things. The good, good art in any genre. You're like King Solomon there. Which one? Tear it in half. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Right, last question. Vampires or zombies? Well, here's the thing. Here's the problem, and I was thinking about this last night. You know, there's a point where we had vampires, and you vampires heard? were scary, and people can say Bela Lugosi was, you know, charming, and women wanted him. Okay, but that's a special kind of woman. Then, uh, Peter, then, then Christopher Lee starts kind of sexing up the vampires in the Hammer films of the late 60s, early 70s, and people go, ooh, there is something to a you know a tall man who wants to bite your neck. It's kind of sexy, and that leads to this whole body stripping thing. By the time vampires are, are twinkling and, and sparkling, which is totally fine, but at the point where they're just love interests and we think they're hot, you are now no longer a monster. And not only was there the zombie movie, Warm-Blooded or something, with the... Uh, with the two actors who fell in love, even though they were zombies. But there's a commercial now for some kind of gum or something. And he goes, you're a zombie. And she goes, but I'm kind of hot, right? And then they kiss in the middle of the street. So at this point, now that zombies are on the doable list, I I'd have to say neither. You're going to have to show me a monster that has not yet been sexualized. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm going to say zombies okay. because my... My nine-year-old son is absolutely mad for the zombie apocalypse. He will stop you and explain how each one of his Nerf guns will prove more or less useful than another Nerf gun in dealing with zombies. And all you have to do is say zombie, and he starts going. 
You know what? I have to I have to amend my answer though. If I had to choose between the two, the thing about zombies that is not the thing about vampires. Uh, you know, vampires I think is basically the fear of, you know, why somebody didn't come home last night because somebody predated them. Zombies is the fear that you wake up one morning and all people have turned against you and become monsters. I think it's more of a current social fear. And I know when the zombie yeah. outbreak stuff started to happen, it really swept the country here and around the world because of the way people were feeling about society. So I still to this day, if I see a zombie thing, I don't get scared. But I think what I would do in that situation as if there's times where I think about how I could fortify my home. Or like I go look at the patio windows and somebody could break in through there. So I'm like, how do I stop the zombies? And then I go, uh, Roan, zombies aren't real. But I have to have that conversation with myself because I'm always sort of making contingency plans for how I'm going to deal with the zombies. And I get annoyed when people don't kill them well in the movies. And I'm like, you people stupid. Save your upper body strength. Just do this. Set this as a trap. You know? And and, and then I stop and I go, why are you thinking about fake things? Like, none of this Some, is going to sometimes, happen. Sometimes I have to call up Roan and remind him zombies. <laughs> yeah. You, real. You know, I, yeah. I have to make a confession. Uh, yeah. on, on those lines, I have to make a confession because um, when my other half and I were looking for, for a flat to, to purchase, to buy, uh, to do the studio and before that to, to living, uh, every time we went into a place, uh, and now in Spain, um, very few people can speak English to a good enough level. So when I'm talking in English with my husband, usually I get this, you know, um, completely blank, starey look of, from, from people who have no idea <laughs> what I'm saying. And the number of times that I've, we, we've gone to places and I've said to Mart, um, I don't like this place. Oh, how come? This, this place is beautiful. It's very well lit. It's got large windows. And it's a bit, yeah, but you have a massive entrance so the zombies could, uh, you know, pile through there and put <laughs> enough pressure on the door to open it. There's, there's no space there's no to have any kind spots. of supplies. Um, you know, so we, we used to rank all the flats and all the apartments we saw, we used to rank them in how well they would do to protect us. In yeah, the event of a zombie defensible apocalypse. against zombie attacks. Sure. Yeah. I totally get that. So, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, I've said before, um, and Ron and I talk about this a lot when we talk about horror, that one of the, ser one of the purposes that um, fiction serves is the ability to look at things that are difficult to look at um, but to, so you can look at them sideways, like the, the same purpose that dream serves to cloak it in, um, another reality and let us look at things that we can't look at straight on. And horror lets us, in my opinion, look at things that are closer to reality. We can look more directly when we, when we look through the lens of horror than, um, fantasy. Fantasy puts more of a cloak of dream between us and the difficult thing. And uh, so so I think that's why Ron is spot on when he talks about zombies being a reaction to, a, you know, a fear about society and other people. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me in some ways. You know, if you want to if, if, if you're concerned about being attacked, let's let's joke and let's talk about it as a zombie thing. You know, that's. Uh, but at the at root, it's about being safe. Right. So. So I hope you found an apartment that makes you safe. Well, yes, actually, because this one has a very narrow entrance, which is excellent. And I could go into the penthouse if I wanted to, so I could have everything I needed in there and get some water. So, you know, I, I would feel relatively safe in here. It's just that the walls are very thin, so uh, I wouldn't be able to do 
a lot of noise once inside. But no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I'm, I'm okay. You, you can reinforce those walls. Now we can put up automated weapon implantations, right? And then we... <laughs> well, that's, in, in Spain, that's hard. Send me the floor plan. The, the we design it. <laughs> we, do, we don't have that many weapons in Spain, so it would be really hard to get them anyway. That, that would mean an awful lot of adventures you know, going out and, but, and finding them. But, but, but another aspect, though, is that I have... Uh, I have a pantry and I have cupboards. I have some space. I live live a little – an hour north of New York City um, and there's plenty of space here. Um, and you can you can get a decent amount of square footage for, for a reasonable price. And so I've got the space to store food and I don't like to – I'll shop for produce. But I could live on what's in the pantry for weeks. So there are people, the way they shop, especially chefs, you know, they'll go out each day and buy fresh ingredients. And there's things you have to buy fresh. But I've got enough things that I could just cook that if the zombie apocalypse hit, I really wouldn't have to leave the house for three weeks. So the rest of you would all be working out your stuff. <laughs> the major battles would be won or done. And by the time I peeked out, I'd just be crawling over everybody to try to get to the, uh, you know, the local supermarket and see if there's anything left on the show. Three weeks is about how long it'll take for the people from New York City to reach you. You know what? It's, uh, <laughs> it's I'm comfort. further north than he is with more bodies of water <laughs> between me and the zombie apocalypse. Well, in the case, now we know where we have to go in the case of zombie apocalypse. Yeah, you everybody to lose house. But but my basement is also like accidentally for like different reasons other than zombies. It's super reinforced. Like I, I filled in all of the windows with cinder block uh, filled with concrete. So you couldn't get it. And I have steel doors down there and everyone has a lock. So it occurs to me I've accidentally built a zombie proof fortress of solitude. My entire basement you is it. Do not ask him what those other reasons are. No, I, 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 was, you know, I was thinking something in those lines. I'm thinking, I'm, I, I think I'm going to move on with this because this, this could get dark. <laughs> anyway, talking about horror. Okay, let, let's let's get into in, into the, um, the the reality of why you guys are here because uh, you you have grimmer space going on at the moment, which is doing incredibly well at over a hundred thousand dollars and still on the on the day of recording 17 days to go uh, yes. which is amazing i mean did you expect that this was going to do that well well we were confident that it would succeed um and uh we were hoping to hit the chord that we seem to have struck. So it was a combination of believing in what we were doing, um, hoping that we would we would resonate and reach people the way that um, we felt the material resonated, and then a lot of gratitude that it turned out to be the case. Okay. Yeah, you know, you 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 stock your shelves. You spend you spend two years building something, and you think it's great. You think it's fun. You think you've good, done a good job spreading the word. But until the store door opens and the store doors open and people rush in to buy things, you really have no idea if the work you've put into it, as Lou said, is going to resonate. So, you know, I, I always had high expectations for this. Uh, I'm not a I don't consider myself an optimist. I just said, no, this is really good. Like, this is the thing I would want to play. So I don't know how many people out there are like me. But for anyone who is, this is going to turn them on. But that's my data point. I know what I like. You know, we didn't actually do a poll and say, 
Uh, we spoke to people, but we didn't really get an enormous cross sample of people saying, how do you feel about sci-fi horror for the Starfinder system? And so in that respect, we went in with no built-in audience uh, and no real understanding if uh, if uh, people were going to uh, salute the project when we ran it up the pole. So it has been a very, very wonderful experience. And as Lou said, we are just uh, drowning in gratitude for, for all of the love and support and enthusiasm. Even Reddit is being nice to us. It's crazy. Wow. Reddit. <laughs> that, that, that is an achievement. Just that you already have, oh, I mean, an insane amount of respect because that is quite unusual. Okay. Um, yeah. How did it all start, your your partnership? Because uh, you obviously have very good synergy between the two of you. What's what's the story? What's well, going on there? Well, we've we've worked together for years and years and years on on various projects. And two thousand and eight or nine, you know. Uh, but we yeah, yeah. yeah two thousand eight or nine, and we we just we find it very easy to. We we met in a Where Cabbages writing circle, which was an online uh, freelancers writing circle for RPG writers, and. Uh, we didn't realize, even though there was people from around the world in this group, we had no idea that we lived 45 <laughs> minutes away from each other. And That's once right. we started to click online as creative partners and we said, yeah, this is we, we were like, oh, Lou put out an idea and I started adding to it. And it was like, you're blowing my mind. This is so good. And I'm like, where are you at? Where are you at? And we realized I could probably walk to his house. And that was unusual. And so it's it's been a creative partnership. And, and a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm in his kitchen and we're having a conversation uh, about science fiction versus the fantasy like how much and i'm saying like i was saying like i don't really care for a lot of science fantasy elements in my science fiction and lou was like yeah i know i like hard sci-fi but then lou started to say actually i could think of a bunch of examples where i like science fantasy quite a bit and he started to name them and like and, uh, Hero's Journey by Sterling E. Lanier, um, the High Crusade by Poole Anderson. If we want to go back to classic near pulp era stuff, uh, even the Piers Anthony Split Infinity, or yeah, you know, there's just a lot of. I, I started to realize there's uh, Dark World Detective, which is uh, probably a, a much lesser known work, but one of my enduring favorites. It's on my ever read shelf. You know, th there's more. Uh, the C.S. Friedman series, like like suddenly I realized there's a lot more science fantasy on my shelf than I realized. Right, and uh, so he started. He starts. Rising. He starts. Uh, no, let me please read your whole bookshelf to the audience. <laughs> so um, the and so Lou and I like to uh, you know play fight. We're we're, we're good friends and we, we we joke spar, and so I started to take this sort of. Um, hard sci-fi position he started to take the science fantasy position and i said and i did a joke and i stood up to him and i said you want to fight about it and his eyes widened a little and he goes what, what do you mean good sir and i meant well we could actually we've got this um we've got like notes for science fiction lying around and we could do a lot with that why don't we create a setting where because of a rift in space time and all science galaxy a very hard sci-fi galaxy gets invaded from uh nigh immortal wizards from another part of the universe from a galaxy where magic does exist and is a force and that magic leaks into a degree from this portal that opens up in the hard science galaxy and it becomes a pitched battle between bullets versus fireballs pick your side 
And so, you know, why not make that the central premise, that tension? Because there's so many people like, I only like hard sci-fi. Well, really, I only like sci-fantasy. Okay, <laughs> fight! Yeah. And then, um, and then at some point we realized we wanted cool. to give some, some extra juice to the sci-fi only world. So we went sci-fi horror because that makes them a bit more equipped to deal with, you know, monsters, um, or the monstrous. And, uh, yeah. And so Grimmer Space was born. And, and horror is, is something that, um, uh, Lou and I take pretty seriously. I take, uh, I mean, not pretty seriously, very seriously, <clears throat> as I've said before, good horror, because uh, there's a lot of bad horror too. It's all subjective to opinion, but uh, but um, we take our horror very seriously. We've got some. We, it's not just like science fiction, but with a monster thrown in. the 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 game is designed to actually create those feelings of horror, but also conversely to allow players the agency to be heroes within that realm, to be scared but still be able to fight back well. And that was a balance we had to strike when creating Grimmer Space-specific character classes. Even though you can use Starfinder character classes, we've created some Grimmer Space um, uh, character classes where you can kind of unleash horrors of your own to to battle the terrors of the, the darkness and the edge to, of the to, galaxy. To be both scared and scary. Yeah. Why did you go for Starfinder in the first place when there are so many other systems around? Um, the, the answer is that we've been writing together for so many years and we had been writing in Pathfinder. Um, and so while there are other systems that we play and definitely other systems that I play, Ron and I have played everything from you know Dogs in the Vineyard to Sorcerer to Cthulhu to, you know, we have our our set of uh, other systems, the one we knew best uh, and had written for the most was Pathfinder. Um, and because they had Starfinder, uh, it seemed like tackling this new concept and tackling a system we hadn't written very much for at the same time didn't didn't fill us with the same degree of confidence. And then, to be honest, at the same time, we, we know a lot of people in the say, Starfinder, yeah. Pathfinder universe. And... And and it's proved amazingly helpful. The the Starfinder community, the Pathfinder third party publishing community, has has just come out of the woodwork to help us. Um, you know, we there's a huge list: Rogue Genius Games, Wright Publishing, uh, Monty Cook Games, uh, John Brazier Industries, um, Entertainment, he, yeah, yeah, uh, Modifius Entertainment, our our distribution partner. Um, God, I know I'm missing uh, legendary yeah, no, games. Missing, you, legendary zero one games uh, sent out a yeah. s- sent something out. Yeah, S- zero. Yeah, all, all, um, Lewis Porter Junior Designs, like all of the third party companies where we knew people. And I apologize for anyone I missed. I'm going to get a, a list in front of me the next time this question comes up. Um, they they have helped us immensely in spreading the word and encouragement and advice. Uh, because a number of them, of course, have been uh, done Kickstarters far more than we had. Uh, and we've greedily drunk at the well of that. And, and I think if we had gone with another system, we just would not have ac- had access to the kind of community support that we yeah, we've We've made – we've just you – know, being in the, the business as, as freelancers and as just you know men about town at conventions and such – 
we've made some really good friends in publishing. And because of that, when we decided to become publishers, people really reached out and put their arm around us and lifted us up and gave us a lot of strength. So that's not not trying to be humble. It's 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 we're humbled by the truth of it, which is we got a lot of help from our our good friends. And that's why we're able to do what we're able to do. It's it's absolutely been a group effort. And uh, and and also uh, shout out to Gamerati, who's uh, uh, handling our campaign. Oh, yeah. I knew I forgot. <laughs> yeah, kinda, yeah, no, incredible. So, and and Modifius has been fantastic with their their advice and their resources. They've been amazing, and they're the ones who are uh, going to be distributing our book worldwide. Well, both names that you mentioned there, they are, I mean, true professionals. I, I have immense respect for both Ed Healy and, and, and Chris Birch from Modifius because they they mm-hmm. both they, they prove beyond any doubt that uh, even smaller companies can do absolutely fantastic work and get from zero to hero uh, <laughs> if, if they put the right effort. So yeah, no, those two companies I have immense respect for um, all, all the way. Um, what's been the, the biggest lesson that, that you guys have learned working with Starfinder to, to create Grim Space? Kickstarters are more involved than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but is Starfinder specifically? Um, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, um, when you work with a system and you want to bring something that's new, that hasn't necessarily, the system hasn't necessarily been yeah. built for, you, you have to start tweaking, you have to start doing things, trying new things, making sure they work. You, you don't, that's, that's true. You're trying, to, you're trying to land your parachute on moving yeah. Earth. Yes. Because, yeah, because it's, it's just Starfinders right out of the gate. We've been developing the ideas for it before it was officially released. So once it was released, Lou's looking on the boards and he's saying, nobody wants player options. People are saying they don't want player options. And yet Lou is just saying yesterday, people are really liking our player options. (laughs) So if we took the data points that we were seeing early on, we never would have created player options, but we just had to, we felt like we had to. And once we did, the script changed on that. People had settled in with Starfinder, and they did like our over-the-top uh, character classes. Um, even the people at Paizo came up to me at PaizoCon, and and that was used. I love these, uh, I love these uh, over-the-top character classes. These are really incredible because we're we're definitely doing our own thing we're in their playground, but we we've got our own little corner of it. And uh, so, yeah, go ahead, sir. No, I think inside the system, though, the the biggest challenge has been the tension between um, setting up horror games in which you you want people to get spooked out and be anxious or, or nervous or afraid or um, you know feel these roller coaster thrill ride feelings but not get shut off like a switch <laughs> right well that'll be enough of that right anyway that was fun and, and at the same time the Starfinder setting, it's very hard to die. The Starfinder system, I mean, it's very hard to die. Um, the mechanics of the death and dying and healing system make it um, extra difficult to put your heroes at risk. Well, um, that's so, true. But so our, that's been that, the mechanic issue. That's true. But one of our playtesters, the great GM, uh, Jillian Anderson, when we asked how her games went at 
PaizoCon because we had different GMs running our giveaway adventure, Abattoir 8, which is until the end of the Kickstarter, it's available for free over at Drive-Thru RPG, Abattoir or the, 8. Or the Open Gaming Store. if you Or the Open Gaming Store, yep, sorry to forget that, or Open Gaming Store. But we said, how did your characters do? And she said, well, how did your players do? And she said, 23 out of 19 died. <laughs> I yeah. said, what? Nin- said, 19 well, out of 23. No. 23 out of 19 because she had to give one group of four a mulligan because they died so quickly. <laughs> so yeah. it was actually 23 character deaths out of 19 players. Yeah. Um, not everybody had that experience. Um, some GMs were able to keep their characters alive, but that's a challenge. Not only is it hard to kill players in, in Starfinder, and we're, that was not the mission of the, uh, of the adventure. Uh, right, right. Of, that's not that's you know, not a, that's not a, a grinder. Goal. It's not a grim tooth trap where we just drop you in and you die. I hope you enjoyed your death. There you go. Here's a hat. <laughs> and killing characters is not a design goal. Yeah, then why do we have ribbons that say "I died in grimmer space" handed out to attach to badges at Paizo? <laughs> because roll roll for combat. <laughs> that was great, and everybody did that. But here's the, here's the thing. Another challenge is dark vision. You know, a lot of horror movies would be a lot less scary if you could just open your eyes and the whole room lights up and you can see what's actually in there. So. You have to be really inventive to work with things like dark vision and figure out how you can believably hamper it without it looking like you're just trying to take dark vision away. There has to be situations where it works and maybe situations where it might not work based on things in the environment. And and so you're trying to do horror, but you're also trying to do horror where certain um, species or races might have the ability to not get spooked, not get snuck up on. And so that is a challenge because a lot of horror is, um, or most horror is rooted in a very human earthly experience of what scares us. And it's kind of like in horror movies. Now, if you want somebody to go in the woods and have a horror survival horror story, a rural horror story, for some reason, we have to set up the, con- you know, for an obvious reason, we have to set up the controversy early on in the story that one of the yahoos on the camping trip says, no cell phones, no cell phones. Let's all put our cell phones in the glove compartment, which is idiotic when you're going into the woods. Always have your cell phone. Don't be an idiot. Something could happen. But in horror movies, there's always no reception where somebody says, I'm collecting all the cell phones or somebody gets mad at somebody else and arbitrarily just chucks like a $700 phone into the woods. Um it's ridiculous. But if you have cell phones, the horror that you've read about and the horror that goes up to the movies in the early 80s, it just goes away. It becomes impossible to say uh, that a certain horror story can still happen unless you remove the technology. But at the same point, science fiction also frees you up to use to new technology to show the new horrors that can come out of that. So there, there have been some interesting uh, movies and books that have come out the past few years that are very dependent on new technology or on social media uh, in order to tell new types of horror stories that have never been told. And, uh, and that's been a challenge, but you, you just got to pay attention and adjust because as the times change, uh, so necessarily must the storytelling style of horror one of the things that I find the most, um, I guess frustrating is not the word, but it is a little bit frustrating in, in horror games, is that um, there are very few guidelines as to what makes uh, good horror, because people try to use, uh, to mistake horror with shock value. Yep. So um, how how is that addressing in Grimmer Space to, to give a, a good 
um, guideline or inclination or, or I don't know guidance. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm going to um, praise Roan here. So as both a cinephile and an essayist, he's actually done. We've done two things, and Roan has has run with it. We've identified so far. Uh, 15 different kinds of horror that we intend to explore in Grimmer Space. And you'll see on the back of Abattoir 8 and a bunch of subgenres listed out. Yeah, we intend to put this on on all our adventure products, the list of those horror types and then highlighting the ones that are in the adventure. So you know what you're getting in the right in, in the process of doing that. Uh, and we're also going to identify intensity um, and we're also going to identify length so you can really dial in on what you want to experience horror wise um, but in the course of doing that Roan has written what I think is a brilliant essay and uh, I'm going to encourage him to publish it uh, independently at some point uh, that goes through what what is horror in Grimmer Space what we think makes for good horror and gives guidelines to our writers on every kind of horror with examples from film and cinema and and literature to say, um, here's, here's how you do it and why, and this is what we think would be scary. And this is what not to do. And this is what to avoid. Ron, I think you've often given the example of, um, you've given an example like of, uh, a vampire moment, right? Where the, well, yeah, no, that's, that's one of the things they say, like, um, sure. So it's not that we have vampires in Grimmer space per se, because at this point we do not have anything like a vampire. Grimmer space is its own thing. It evolved independently of earth across the universe. So there's no earth animals or anything. We have to make up new animals. And the challenge there is you can't say big as a rhino, hmm. sly as a fox. There's no rhinos and foxes <laughs> might be rhino like and fox like creatures on planets. But the, uh, the the example with the vampire is in D and D. If you run up against a vampire, right. all that represents to you really is the potential for level drain. It's like it's a tough foe, so you're like, oh, I could die here. I don't want my character to die, but you're probably not feeling terror. It's not the same as as an early experience in your life where you saw a vampire film. You're just going, ah, well, uh, if you don't know how to kill a vampire, you have not been paying attention. Because it's just a recipe. When it when there's the unknown, you don't know how to kill something. You don't know what you're dealing with. The first time you face any monster, it comes closer to horror than facing your fifth vampire in a game of D&D. Yeah. So while playing like Ravenloft way back in the day and going up against Strahd, it, it's just sort of a satire of a vampire castle. And, and maybe that was scary for people the first time. But vampires are not inherently scary, nor are zombies, nor are like... Just, you know, spines torn out of bodies, like, lying on the ground. That's just not, like you said, shock value. Like, here's some gore. Oh, look, there's blood. But but you can make things scary. You can make anything scary. So I said the difference is if that same vampire, if your party was surrounding a vampire and an NPC there was watching uh, their lover hanging limply like a mouse in the mouth the maw of the vampire as it spun around preternaturally fast to face each one of you at a time. The reason why that's scary is the investment of loss. You couldn't save your lover. Uh, the idea that we are not apex predators, but that we are prey. The, 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 the belief that we're at the top of the food chain suddenly getting challenged. It's very scary to people. Mm. And so you're bumping into a lot of weird feelings. Uh, 
and different people feel horror in different ways. Different things affect people, kind of like, um, say, men not understanding what it is like or, oh, stop complaining to women about being harassed because it doesn't happen to me, so I don't know. But similarly, uh, having a lot of black friends and been in cars with them uh, when the police have pulled us over, I've been I have been the reason why police walked away because there was a white guy in the car. It just that it happened. You know, it's happened a lot. And so because of that, I understand that when I see a flashing lights in the car, my heart goes cold, too, because I know I'm going to have to spend 80 bucks. Their heart goes cold for a whole nother reason. So when you're talking to um, people who are experiencing a kind of societal pressure that you're not, a kind of horror that might not resonate with you might resonate with them. We, there's different paths to horror. And so try to be inclusive and think of what it is to be afraid of this, what it is to be afraid of that. What it, I'm not afraid of spiders at all. Uh, I don't like getting bit by them, but I'm not afraid of spiders. But that doesn't mean that I don't know that some people are. So spiders are not inherently scary, but there's absolutely, well, for some people they are, but, but there's absolutely ways to make them scary even if you're not scared of spiders. So it's not just have the elements of horror. The horror has to be the effect. A vampire isn't horror, but a vampire in a situation that creates horror, that's what we're looking for. It's the it's the narrative situation and it's the personalizing mm-hmm. of of the event or aspect and and the way it resonates with either something universal or something particular to an audience that you're speaking to and it's finding that connection so how have you breached the gap in that case between fantasy and uh, horror because uh, it, as you said before you know with with strad it's um let's face it with ravenloft it's very difficult to be scared of ravenloft nowadays i mean not, not yeah at least i'm, I'm not it's just 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 doesn't scare me anymore it looks like a white wolf party you know you're like yeah <laughs> It's not, I don't know, it's not that scary. So how have you managed to actually breach that gap between the fantasy and the horror and the science fiction and, and mix it all together efficiently? How 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 does Grim Space make fantasy truly scary? We bought a great blender. <laughs> um, well the answer to your question is it it depends. Um, and it depends on which facet or aspect of play you want to explore in Grimmer Space. So if you want to be a Grimmer who's born, grown up, and lived nowhere but this technological society, um, magic is a source of horror. If you've never, if you've never seen anything um, like an undead rising from the grave when that happens to your companion or, or 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 in a scene that's going to freak you out because you have no concept of magic if you're going to play someone who is dealing with magic for the first time um their own powers are going to be a source of of horror uh the greater powers that they don't know how to deal with are going to be a source of horror um so what we've tried to do and if you're playing a a starfinder character class who's who's been to use the term raven lofted into this end of the galaxy um that sense of separation and isolation uh where you don't know what's going on or where you are or, or why you're and 
And without getting too deep into it, we've also created something called Moat. And Moat is a way that Moat is a way that you can use magic even if you're not near this portal that brought in these evil mages from across the uh, the universe. And so there is a way to use magic, and it's it's really gritty. It's very potent. It's fiction worthy. So even our magic is a little more dangerous. And the these wizards that come in from across the universe, they're not. They don't look like Ming the Merciless. They're Sunder Mages. They're more like. Uh, Cenobites on steroids. They are not human anymore. They are something really scary, almost gods unto themselves, and um, imperceptible. Their their intelligence. It's so it's hard to figure out what they are. They are the great unknown, the new threat, and they are uh, almost a weather pattern that sends a bunch of things into motion that's going to forever change Grimmer Space or try to. So we've tried to make magic itself a a very dark look. The magic itself is actually pretty scary. I like that. It's not like no illusionists, you know, um, standing on the back of you know space whales. No, I, I like that an awful lot because one of the things that I, I argue you know, very often with people is, you know, when they talk, oh, this is magic, and I, I talk to them and say, well, especially in fantasy settings, I say, well, this is not really magic; it's science. You know, it's just a science right. that you do with verbal, somatic, and material components. But you always get the same result when you always do exactly the same thing. That's right. that's science. So the fact that you've done it into something darker, something grittier, and you've mixed it with with the science fiction aspect of Grim Space, I, I find that quite um, quite refreshing. I like it. How how have you managed though to keep some sort of, um, I guess, congruence or? It uh, the honest answer to your question is vats of spare genius. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh you you when you talk about congruence you're talking about um like mechanical balance within the system well no i was talking more about um uh, for instance how do you explain the fact that there is some science and there is uh, magic and they both live together because science and magic as we understand it and you know in our in, in our world uh, and, and within science I see, I things, see. It's, it's not compatible you know you can either have one or the other you don't have magic in star well, trek for instance you, you you're right you can have only one or the other until magic becomes a provable force in the scientific world that right. they try to have to quickly adjust and figure out how can we even sense this we don't have even have a way to sense magic but we can see the effect meaning you've got electromagnetism you've got gravity you've got all sorts of universal forces and one of one of the ones you've never experienced is magic it's the unknown and and so so as ron has said to me before what we've decided is that magic and even the laws of physics are not necessarily universal like we think, but they're more like localized um, effects and forces. And that's not that's not actually that's not against any um, quantum physicist theory that like there's the variable speed of light theory. There's there's all sorts of theories that just things may not be as universal as we think they are. So rather than have our mages go into a parallel universe we actually just had them come across the galaxy to the most distant corner one of the most distant corners of the universe to the most isolated dwarf galaxy in the entire universe suggesting that things closer to the center of the universe as we know the center uh are different simply operate differently there's magic there and there is no magic at the edge of the universe though whatever that force is it it doesn't emanate there so is so is armchair scientists very armchair in my case 
um, we we've actually decided to we sat down to review the set of current scientific theories and are picking and choosing the ones that we think would support the reality that's of this not, happening. That's not that's not true. Um, and and I uh, I've been coming up with theories like usually about 15 years before I read about them, even though I don't have the training. Uh, my my gut for where observation scientific observation is headed and where it it, it it's um, where it winds up being, where people start speculating. I'm usually there uh, a couple of that, decades earlier. That, that's why I said me, because what I've been doing is research. You've right. been, no, no, you've no, been no, running no. on your theories. Well, I've been running on my no. theories and then I've been finding like looking for echo chambers in scientific uh, articles going, look, this explains what I was talking about. So like rather than, hmm, let me create theories based on what's out there. I've been just uh, had theories and then noticed that articles are rolling in that are like, this is perfect. So for even the idea of, say, that the gliding room galaxy shortened to G rim, that's where we get grimmer space the uh, uh it's it's a uh, it's a galaxy but it's it's the most distant galaxy it's the most isolated galaxy you can't even really see stars that aren't in that galaxy from that galaxy and so just like last week there's an article about they just found the most isolated galaxy and it's practically grimmer space so it's just perfect you get to keep like posting articles that back up all of the central premises of what make the setting the setting so i find that's really neat to just see the science catch up to grimmer space and that's the truth of what's happening here let's take a victory lap gentlemen <laughs> yeah hawking he used to call us you know <laughs> well i was a pen pal to carl sagan when i was 13 so wow that's true that's amazing. Um, now, another thing about um, horror is that it depends an awful lot on uh, narrative, as, as we've discussed. Um, how, what tools are present in Grim Space? Because let's face it, Starfinder is not a particularly um, deeply narrative system. It's, 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 it's crunchier. It's got an awful lot of, right. of numbers within it. Where a horror needs more than just rolling dice. What, mm. uh, what um, either mechanically or howeverly, have you added to the system to help with the narrative of horror within Grim Space? Sure. So uh, one of the hallmarks, I think, or I like to think of Rones in my uh, collaborative writing has been to bring a, a more nonlinear narrative element to a uh, crunchier system. So that's that's something we're practiced at and that we've been practiced at um, and, and that there have been awards for. So so that's sort of one of our design goals and one of our specialties. And we try to make that as simple as possible by creating uh, tools that we include usually in some sort of checklist form. So if you get Abattoir 8, our free adventure, for example, you'll see that we have um, environmental factors going on in a damaged station and they can change the um, experience of players uh, amping the anxiety, amping the worry, amping the sense of isolation. Uh, and so what we've done is to say these environmental elements uh, as an aspect of narrative, we've taken them and turned them into a checklist. And it's the GM can just simply have it next to them and say, oh yeah, I use that one. Oh, let me throw this one in now. Or let me throw that one in now. Um, and we've also made sure, Roan pointed this out uh, once when we started working, 
our bad guys, our sources of horror, um, they have deep motivation. They have reasons that they're being horrific. Uh, and, and we're always layering that in and looking to give simple tools to GMs for how they, that they can use or not use. Cause plenty of GMs can do it better than, than, than I've ever seen. But we, simple tools that allow them to bring that out to bring the narrative elements to the fore um and and that's one of our constant design goals okay, i like i like the sound of that um of course now that this has has funded you know like 10 times over already or more or 11 um what comes next? Because you have an insane amount of stretch goals to to deliver. What what are your longer term plans for for Grim Space after all these stretch goals have been delivered? Well, that would be telling. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why I'm asking. Here's my upcoming product line. Yeah, we uh, we we definitely have we have some very long term plans for Grim Space. You know, um, there's some. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Lou can speak to this better, but but I did get there first, so. Um, oh. The, uh, yeah, no, we, we've got some long-term plans. We're passionate about Grimmer Space. This was never like, hey, let's do a Kickstarter, have a successful Kickstarter that people, you know, buy because it's pretty and then they put it on the shelf. Uh, you know, Grimmer Space for life. Very invested in this. Want this to really take off. Want to see, want to see this get into organized play. Want to keep expanding and building and expanding and building this is a place I, I i don't mind living in my head i really like daydreaming myself in a grimmer space we want it to be playable we want it to be a vital and supported line and as as you see from this kickstarter we we should be able to do that you know uh which is very interesting getting this game played getting people invested getting other people creating for it so that this universe just grows and grows yeah. um and and the the number of stretch goals you're seeing are the stretch goals we always wanted from the beginning to happen. And they are building toward the product that we designed from the beginning and hoped and wanted to make. So uh, to be clear, none of these stretch goals are a surprise and we're not scrambling like, oh my God, we need another one. Th this is all part of a very careful plan. Uh, in order to deliver the biggest, best Grimmer space that we can. Um, but what we do, to speak more specifically to your question, what we do have on our hands is setting and adventures. So every, we, we have a, a core book that's half setting, and every location in that setting gets an adventure. So you can explore it more that way. What and, and we have created something that can be modularly plug and play and has a lot of options for uh, GMs to pick up it and, and run with it and engage their own creativity. We want to support that. What's not there yet is a specific overarching AP, for example, um, taking you through some of the central Grimmer Space tensions. Um, that's something we might do in the future. Um, and we have a number of what we might do in the future plans yeah. that yeah. we've that we've detailed to some extent, um, but that we're also going to wait to see what the community says and how they respond to what we're putting out there and what they say they want before we choose 
which one is the next direction. So it's there's a couple of quivers, there's a couple of spears in the sand of different sorts, and we're waiting to see which will be the best one to pick up and throw next. I need to ask you about this because uh, I've I wanted to leave it until the very end because I I, I didn't want this to be the, the central um, topic. But um, one of the aspects that's um, really called people's attentions, and that, this is something that's probably going to become more and more popular as, as, as time goes by, is, is to have a celebrity on board. And you've, you've, you've had Sean Austin since the very, very beginning. How mm -hmm. has that helped you, you think? Oh, Sean is a creative powerhouse. Um, he's, you know, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a director, a producer, he's a Academy Award nominated for um, participate, you know, for being an actor and for being a director. Uh, his input helps has helped shape the setting already and will continue to do so. Um, you know, the smallest of small examples uh we ran a bunch of what we were working on with him by him early on and and he said uh, this is great and all but you know these these names they don't feel like places they don't feel like empires they don't feel like polities well he had, he had noticed he had noticed that two of the names were very similar and we didn't come up with either of those names actually right. and he said these are these are very simple you know, and they sound too much the same. And like Lou's saying, we we immediately turn around and we went, oh, yeah, of course. You know, so it's there's not just that that horse sense, but Sean's one of those, you know, not only does he not only does he really understand a story and and character, he's he's incredibly generous and he doesn't really have a filter. Like if he if he has a creative thought, he will let you know. And if it's constructively crit critical, um, he'll just pass it right on. And he doesn't he doesn't care if you use it or don't use it, but he'll he'll let you know what's on his mind. So Sean is invested. He loves storytelling. And that's been incredible for us. That's been the that's been the root of our friendship uh, for for years now. That's what 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 connects us. Just a, a love of what we're yeah. doing, not just with with Grimmer Space, but really with with story. And that's what he what he really respects about role playing games, the type of stories that come out of them. So, yeah. so it, it is safe to say, because I'm sure that an awful lot of people are thinking this, that it, it is safe to say that Sean is not just, you know, the, the celebrity face of the project, but he actually is part of the project. He's not there oh, yeah. just, just to attract yeah. people. Yeah, we we don't, uh, you know, it's it's not as easy to call Sean up uh, because of his schedule and, and talk to him the way Ron and I can't, you know, can call each other so sometimes we have to send stuff to sean and he'll get back to us you know a couple days later when, when he gets back from abu dhabi or something you know it's like oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah when he gets back from wherever the latest excursion is um uh but absolutely it's his creative input we say in one of our videos or sean says in one of his videos i'm here to make sure everything packs that cinematic punch and and that's absolutely true uh, he he gives us direct feedback on and notes creatively on material. He'll he'll be one of the creative developers. Ron and I are the other two who give direct feedback to the writers um, on their drafts and says, you know, can you can you spruce this up here and this isn't intense here and what if we did it differently there? And his eye is always toward, uh, for obvious reasons, what what would make this more cinematic? And we found that. Asking that question improves the quality of, of everything because it speaks to the imagery, it speaks to the intensity, it speaks to the narrative of the story. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, obviously, you cannot answer this question that I would like to ask you. So I'm going to ask this question in a different way. And is that in the future, what would you rather see? A um, blockbuster movie about Grimspace or a TV series? For me, mm -hmm. TV series. Okay. Greater story potential, uh, richer character development. Uh, I've always been a movie person, but I have definitely turned into a binge-watching fool. And when I see a show like Black Sails, and I'm not pirates fine what do i care you know but when i see like a show like black sails that makes pirates as interesting as i found them to be with writing that's as nuanced um in the tv show black sails a whole episode can go by and if you were to say well what were the plot points what really happened well they went over here and then they talked to this person and this woman said this and it's that you could you could have a show where almost nothing happened and yet you were riveted by the interplay in dialogue the brilliant way in which everybody had a point even though those points might be at odds everybody made a good point so there's just like one show where like would i rather see the tv show vikings or a movie about vikings that was really good at this point Uh, my tastes have changed. I want to see more. I want to get deeper into a setting. And because of that, uh, even if there was more money in movies, and certainly that would be amazing, you know, uh, I, uh, I think I'd rather be uh, connected to a TV show and really get into some much richer storytelling. I think the potential there is greater just because of the, you know, the, the time you get. I'm, I'm going to sign on with that, with the evolution, you know, since the, You know, the Sopranos or maybe a little bit before then of the long form sequential television that we're entering, I, I think, a golden age of um, what you really can get to do in long form television now is a blockbuster movie every week. You know, once it's being released or, you know, even just slow it down so it doesn't have to hit those fast points. You know, a, mo a movie is like if you give me any idea, uh, you could do it right now. I'll tell you in five minutes, I'll turn that idea into a movie and I'll do it because I'm a screenplay writer and it, it's pretty easy. And I can tell you like, okay, well, you're going to set up most of your characters in the first 10 minutes. If you want a Hollywood reader to read it, all your main characters yeah, are yeah, introduced yeah. by Sid, page 10, Sid, even though that'll Sid change. Fielding right? it. Right. Yeah, you're sure. Yeah. Don't have a conversation between two people. Have it in a strip club with one of the two people swimming in a swimming pool. God, that 80s movie writing advice, just <laughs> horrific. And it, all people did was rewrite everything he said. They just did exactly what he told them to do in the books. And that's why every crime boss is talking from a swimming pool or, or cops are always meeting in a strip club because that's the only place we could have a conversation. And um, it's it's so quiet in here. This is totally the place to convene. And, um, and yet three quarters of the way you know he three quarters of the way through through any movie is the uh the big gloom as uh screenplay writer stephen geller called it and that's where the hero the protagonist of the story or uh anti-hero whatever is the uh, the furthest away from their goal and so there's this sort of cookie cutter do this do this do this then this happens person tries to get it doesn't get it i mean that that exists to a degree for a lot of fiction, um, even in novels, there's, you know, a act structures, but also a certain pattern for how things happen. When you're working in a TV show, there is also a formula, but it's a little bit more nebulous. You really get a chance to not have to hit the, you sort of do have to hit the same moments in each episode, but they're far more imperceptible than in a movie because in a movie i have to how about these movies where we have to like the main character 
So because we have to like them, they want us to like them. So what do they do? They'll show a man with his wife and a kid and the kid will be getting cereal at the table. Pet the dog moment. Pet the dog moment and scruff the kid's hair. And the woman says something. He goes, I know, dear. And they have this little peck on the cheek. And it's 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 just it's semi nauseating (laughs) only because of the it's ubiquitous. Like if that was just if that was how a movie started to be like, oh, cool. These people all really like each other. But that's not as much you want to invest me. Have them have a fight. about, you know, why, why did you get the cat declawed, you idiot? You know, and so, so all of these things start with the pet the dog moment and the hero who walks out and the background music where they keep trying to make you feel feelings by playing music behind everything to just try to guarantee that you have this certain attachment or emotional experience. And, and I, I grew up with a lot of that. And at this point, when I see it, it just looks a little ham handed. It's very awkward. It's very forceful. And TV allows you to really get into a character's head in life in a way that's not so forced and not so rushed so um shall i presume that you're actually going to write some scripts and try to get the series done please never say never <laughs> <laughs> i i wouldn't presume to tell you what to presume good well I'm, I'm going to presume that you're presuming that at some point somebody will presume that it's going to be worth making a series out of this because i i get the that would be that brilliant of them and yeah. you just came up with that yourself. Everybody listened to this man. Clearly, the most brilliant man of our time. I nearly, nearly, um, very close. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about closing. We've been at it for nearly an hour now, and and I think you know. People, Sorry, people need. Well, I think we need to stop so people can stop listening to the podcast and, and get to the Kickstarter and back it, just in case they haven't yet. Bad, bad. Remember what I just said about being him being like the most brilliant person on earth? Exactly. Yes. He's oh, like just reinforcing that with every new word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, that's that's what people should be doing. I mean, if they haven't been convinced thus far to, to back it, uh, they, they probably don't have a soul or they, something similar. I don't know. Something if weird. you don't love my project by now, you will never <laughs> back my Kickstarter. Right. So um, we, we need to, because this has been, let's, let's face it, this, this, uh, this has been intense. Um, okay. So uh, we need to, you know, chill out a little bit. So um, I'm going to ask you. Um, right, I'm relaxed. I'm shaking it out. I'm shaking it out. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Just, just before we do, I remembered one thing. Somebody who's been amazingly helpful, who I forgot from my list at the beginning. Um, D20 FSRD and Starjammer SRD. Oh yeah, and Open Game Network and Open Game Store have have opened their resources to help us get the message out, and and I failed to mention him, and that's just wrong. So okay, done. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. we're we're in your way, Pago. No, he I, just said relax, take it easy. Yeah, you just got fine. tight. I'm 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 going to ask you um get in the hot tub. Uh, three very weird questions and and see what kind of weird answers you you come up with. Um, I love that you think your questions are weird. Oh, trust me, these these are. <laughs> Trust me, these are right. Um, question number one: um, What's the best the best advice that no one has ever given you? Ron, understand that if you think you're right about something creative, you probably are. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> the best advice that yeah, you just gotta wing this one. It's not a <laughs> the best advice that no one has ever given me. Um. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was a weird question. 
Yeah, no, this is uh, the best advice that no one has given ever given me would be the advice that I came up with for myself by myself. So what would that, that be, Lou? Or, or that I read somewhere. What would that be? Um, if you spend the amount of time working on what you want to be better at, that you spend instead trying to get yourself to a place where you can afford to spend time on it, um, you would have gotten there already. Okay, that's a good one. That's a very. Oh, that's good better one. than mine. I, I was I was making a joke, Lou. Damn you. Damn no, that's that, that was wow. Oh. Okay, okay. Uh, well, there are, two, are another two opportunities to to know to, to be awesome. Good. So, I'm gonna try to beat him on the next one. Okay. Good, good. <laughs> right. So the next you question is, um, what's what's the best mistake that you would like to make again? She has a name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let you go first, Lou, so I can trump you. Oh, okay, excellent. That's so weird. Uh, the, yeah, don't don't, <laughs> don't say that. Uh, the best mistake that I would like to make again. All right, I'm I'm just gonna go first. While you we... go first, while <laughs> I'm thinking. Yeah. So so um, yeah. What's what's a mistake? I mean, what's a mistake, really? Um, I, I wouldn't say, what's the best mistake you'd like to make again? I would go so far as to just answer this a little more th uh, simply and say, I tend to keep making the mistakes that I enjoy making kind of unerringly, uh, <laughs> free of will, willy-nilly. Nilly. So it's not which one. It's kind of like, what are the chances you're not going to make a mistake that you've slightly enjoyed before? Um, yeah, that's it. Okay. Like All of them that feel kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> mistake that i would like to make again um trying to answer this question yeah yeah you it's um failing okay because uh, that, that's the only way that i i learn so uh there comes a point in time where you just have to put something out there uh you just have to make something happen and you can uh, have paralysis by analysis. Just, just, just stop. You just stop. Listen, I'm giving real answers, and you're just quoting <laughs> Anthony Robbins' books. Just stop it. No, it's it's true. No, it's though. also Anthony Robbins. I listened to his course back in like the '90s. Like everything you've said thus far is in, in Anthony Robbins. And, and yeah, well, uh, that's because he comes over and he likes me. He likes you a lot. <laughs> Windows. So, so. Um, you know, there are times where I have put things out there before they were ready or shared them with people before they were really ready, but I didn't have the ability to make them more ready. So it was it was a mistake, but it was the only mistake that would let me move forward. That's true. That's that's really great. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like um, like w when you're an artist, uh, if I may just expand uh when you're, I guess I may, I'll just take it. Of course. Arr, Go ahead. Expand on my, on my answer. Arr, I'm going to expand on your, <laughs> no, no, it's true. It's kind of like, um, when you're, uh, I'm somebody where I come up with ideas and then I notice in real time that people develop cryptomnesia it, uh, where they think that my idea is something that came out of their head. It happens to me all the time. And sometimes there's other people in the room and they see it and they go, oh my, did that just happen? I go, yeah, that just happened. And I don't get upset too much because it happens all the time. 
I'm also pretty famous for not taking other people's ideas and not realizing I didn't do it. I really, if you, if you and I created a project together, I can probably detail, I came up with this idea. You then said this, I then said this, I don't do it to be territorial. I just remember. I'm not trying to be creatively territorial. I just remember the entire conversation. I remember what I was looking at at the time. And so, except when I don't, but when I say I do, I'm, I'm usually provably right. And so that can lead you after you get ripped off the first few times that could lead you to stop sharing ideas with writers and artists. And to me, I would rather just have the ideas sometimes taken than lose the ability to be helpful and to put creative ideas out in front of other. I love collaboration. So even though it's done me wrong at times because people know not what they do, um, it's important for me to always be able to hear someone's idea and add to it or to throw an idea out there. That's awesome. Right, last question. Uh, This is probably the easiest. Um, You have a time machine. You go back in time and you meet your 10-year-old self. Oh, I think and, about this one all the time, man. And and you tell um, your your ten year old self, do not do this. What is this? Oh, I, I love that you think it's one thing. Well, <laughs> the one particular thing. You only have time to tell yourself one thing. Only have time to tell yourself one thing. What would that be? I I don't know about do not do this, but I know what I would try to do. I know what what would be a mission of mine. Um, so Lou, you go first because I'm going to have to think about it like backwards. What would I not want to do? Do not buy back into the market before 2009. Okay. (laughs) No, that's not it. I'm kidding. That's remarkably (laughs) practical. That's, I love it. (laughs) That's that's right. After all that spiritual work, (laughs) I'm like, and by the way, dude. (laughs) Yeah, I've got, I've got Uh, like a lot of regret. So I, yeah, I've got a lot of regret. And so there's a bunch of, but that's life, right? You make mistakes and you wish all your decisions had been better and they weren't and things you couldn't i have zigged when i should have zagged so many times in this life and that could be its own two hour long podcast if i explained all the opportunities i've had where i walked through that door instead (laughs) so yeah yeah so 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 i think i think two things um i think honestly i would go back to my 10 year old self and i would say uh don't do nothing because you can only do a little, do what you can and don't delay. Um, don't, don't wait to start becoming who you want to be and learning how to do what you want to learn how to do. Don't, don't defer that gratification, even if it looks scary. Um, and yet on the other hand, if, if you, uh, and I, I, you know, I read this somewhere, I didn't come up with this, but it's Anthony always, Robinson. No, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's always um, struck me as true, and I keep it close to my heart. Um, if you if you love who you are now, if you love where you are now, if you affirm where you are in life, you have to affirm everything that got you there that was necessary to getting you there. You know, some some bad things happen that get you. I think you I know. said that before. You just made it prettier. Um, I think I first read it from Friedrich Nietzsche. No, no, no. I said in this in this interview, I said that. I just didn't say it that. But you sure? Let's go back to Nietzsche. I, I didn't say I invented it. I was just saying like oh, sure. 
all these regrets, but at the same time, they got me where I am. You know, it's like, yes, it's yeah, been, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's who it's, I am. Yeah, it's it's same, why it's the same thing. If I got even it, the ways, yeah. even the ways in which I'm broken are interesting. They're what makes me me. They're why I can do certain things. They're what limit me sometimes, but they're also what allow me to excel and exceed in, in other ways, you know? So it's, it's all a mixed bag. Aren't we all? And, and I, I guess, um, I, I don't I can't get specific about what I would tell ten me not to do, uh, because there'd be too many things, and I don't want to actually tell you all the regrets of my life. But this seems like a real sour, sad note, you know. No, that's, um, that's, that's for the next Just a slow jazz trumpet dying down a, a city alleyway, going. It's kind of noir ending, and that was sadder space with Louis Gresta and Roanbard. <laughs> Right, guys. Um, thank you so much for being with me today. I truly, truly appreciate it. And oh, this was this was the best. Thank you. It's any time, believe thank me. You. And congratulations on the mega success uh, of of this, which is probably going to hit the hundred and fifty thousand quite easily in the next few days, especially after people listen to this right. podcast. Um, so, <laughs> yes. thank you for being here. Thank, thank you, um, and thank you for giving the us the opportunity to spread the word because you know everyone we can reach helps us make firmer space bigger and better and more where we want it to be and you know it's 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 a little corny but you know you're you're making our creative dreams come true uh and to see that that many people have said yeah yeah okay i'm going to invest in you it didn't i didn't know how that was going to feel until i actually began to look at comments and see each name that come in came in and went these people are actually sacrificing for us because they want what we have. They're they're giving us resources so we can build this. And I had no idea what that was going to feel like. I don't have any experience with that. But to me, it's not 1,500 backers. It's this name and that name and that name and that name. And it's uh, it's just an incredible feeling to have reached out. I've never felt anything quite like this. It's uh, good. Well, let's hope that you feel it for a very long time and many, many times indeed. <laughs> Thank you. You know, this is the time of the podcast in which I tell you, you know how cool that was, how you should go to Kickstarter and unbag it, and how amazing and how I'm looking. I'm not going to say any of those things, seriously, because, yeah, you should know them by now. And in this particular case, they are truer than most of the time. So um, I'm just going to leave that with you and tell you that I would love to hear what you have to say are you back in this project why are you not back in this project why would you like to see this project for another game which one and why yes i know i'm liking saying why anyway uh please get in touch remember you can get hold of me on twitter i am at gms magazine you can also get hold of me in Facebook, uh, we have a Facebook page, of course, uh, GMS Magazine, and also on my personal one, do send me a message, say hello, whatever, uh, you'll be more than welcome. And uh, email, email at podcast at gmsmagazine.com. The intro music is uh, Astral Doors, and the outro music is Shade. Thank you once again for being there with me today, and I will talk to you hopefully very, very soon.